You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Andrew, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Grace Community Church. So glad you were here today. I'm really glad you were here for that special uh, just now. That was very well done and amazingly relevant to the message. I'm not surprised the Holy Spirit does that all the time, uh, but beautifully structured. And I hope as you think about that song this week, you'll think about Michael and Kinsey singing it and, and realize with all the students we have coming in, we have a lot of students going out as well. Michael to Lee and Kinsey to Liberty and others and other places be in prayer for our students uh, as you think about it, as the Lord brings them to your mind. And thank you guys, a whole band, for playing that. That was really wonderful. I'm not really big on applause, you know, for music or sermons. If you want to applaud after the sermon, I'd be on. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But I was really glad you did today. I felt compelled to do the same because that was a lot of effort that went into that. And it was sort of last minute too, uh, a switch. So that was beautiful, uh, guys. And thank you so much. And we will miss you, uh, Michael and Kenzie, both and all who go with you. Well, uh, I wanted also to mention, just before I jump in, um, we started Grace Connection this morning. Uh, for, for, for those of you who are just coming to Grace, you've been here the last two or three weeks, even if this is your first Sunday, and the Lord just impresses on your heart, wow, I'd like to know more about it. Next week is the last week you can jump in. We had one couple at least that was not here today that will be with us next week. But those of you who were in the class this morning, let me remind you, and for everybody who might be interested in coming, you need to get a hold of Ricky Lee. Where is Ricky? Everybody knows Ricky. But if this is your first day, there he is over there. Stand up, Ricky. Wave, waving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those days, huh? Um, I have never had a sermon interrupted with applause. Please don't begin today. <laughs> so, but um, we will begin it. You need to let Ricky know if you want to jump in next week. But we will begin at 845. We've got worship team for the children in the back. Uh, it's, it, it's at a higher level than we've had in the back or in, in, in the past for the children's ministry. So we need to be out of there no later than 945. They would prefer at 930, but we need to get started. So 845 is when we will begin. Um, and, and two weeks from today, one of my favorite days of the year, potluck and students return and, you know, all kinds of people come in. But we will need a lot of food. So I always do this every year. But let me just tell you to start planning now. Um, two weeks from now, we need a lot of food. Students, if you're in an apartment, bring a lot of food. Please, we're going to need a lot of food to feed a lot of people in two weeks from right now. Well, <clears throat> the summer is coming to an end, and this summer I have enjoyed reading Mark Helprin's outstanding novel, A Soldier of the Great War. It's a story about an Italian veteran 
of World War I, who, as an old man, meets up with a young man, and he's sort of mentoring him all in one night, but he starts reflecting on his life, especially his life as a soldier in World War I. Look, even if you're a fan of history, you may think about World War I and think, well, it was called the Great War back in those days, but you may think, ah, that one's really boring, this trench. This is a riveting book. And although this book is recommended as almost essential reading for pastors by Andy Crouch, who's a former executive editor of Christianity Today, it's also recommended on the Gospel Coalition, I need to let you know that it would be a close call as to whether it should be rated PG-13 or R. So just, just so you know, and having made that disclaimer though, I will tell you that I have been deeply moved in reading Alessandro Giuliani's reflections on art and beauty and life and death. And although our protagonist, like his creator and author, is not a believer, Alessandro's reflections on the superiority of, of transcendence over reason as a, as a viable worldview are quite good and quite compelling. I'm on about page 750 of 880 pages of the book. So if by chance you have read it, please do not say anything to me about the ending. I understand that when you read the ending, those last 50 pages or so, you won't think about anything else for hours. One of the things that was so difficult for Alessandro was to figure life out. He, was, he grew up in a home where his dad was a lawyer. Uh, life was pretty good for him. And then the war happened. He had his life all planned out, and the war happened, and it just fell to pieces. And everybody around him that he loved died. But he couldn't die. It was life's cruel fate, he thought, for him that he would not die, but everybody who loved would. It's difficult to make sense of life sometimes, isn't it? If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a biblical worldview will give you some footing in a world that is forever seeking the meaning of life and, and, and that is forever affirming values and ideas that may seem to be built on a solid foundation but are often unable to withstand the storms and vicissitudes where life is just going every different direction. It, Sometimes it's just not enough to believe that God exists somehow, some way. Now, the most sustainable worldviews are those that are based at least somewhat on biblical principles. Even if they do not acknowledge the existence of God, and especially, uh, much less, the incarnate Son of God who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death in the place of sinners. But those who realize <clears throat> there is more to life that meets the eye, are better suited to respond to life's erratic movements. So here's the question for you. Have you come to understand life with all of its twists and turns? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Unless you're an idiot. Oh, no, or you could be young, not an idiot. You just haven't realized yet that life is too complex to figure out. You may think so, but what 
seems so clear today may well be unclear next year or even next week. In a broken world, almost all of us are looking looking for redemption in some form or another, but many are looking in the wrong places. Even those of us who realize that if redemption will come, it must come from God if it comes at all. Even if we understand that, we may be confused about what it looks like. We may find ourselves asking, why did this happen? Or if we're really honest, why did God allow this to happen to me? I hear that from pastors just as often as I hear it from, from laymen. It's helpful to believe that one day all will make sense. But what am I supposed to do when life makes no sense now? And in fact, it calls into question my faith in what I had previously believed. How can I as a Christian make sense of this? Well, if these questions plague you, and again, if they don't now, they will at some point in your life. If these questions trouble you, then you're better able to identify with those who heard and read the words of Isaiah, the prophet. (coughs) We're up to chapter 42 of Isaiah's magnificent prophecy that is quoted and referred to more often in the New Testament than any Old Testament book other than the Psalms. Isaiah has taken a sharp turn uh, beginning with chapter 40. The first 39 chapters were written directly to Isaiah's generation. And more often than not, they were directed specifically to the kings of Judah in that day. And Isaiah was repeatedly saying to those who believed and those who did not believe in Yahweh, those who, who, who worshipped pagan gods and those who worshipped Yahweh, he was saying, do not put your hope in political alliances. This Nation of Syria, I know, wants to attack you, but trust in God. He will take care of you. So the first section was a call to trust God for protection instead of seeking those alliances with with godless nations. But in Isaiah 40, the book takes a turn. And from Isaiah 40 to 55, the prophet is writing to those who will be in captivity some 100 years later. And, And then chapters 56 to 66 are written to an even later generation that will return to Jerusalem. So Isaiah's writing in in our section that we're in now as if he's in Babylon talking to these captive uh, Jewish men and women who claim Yahweh as their God. Uh, This could only be written, of course, by, by one person if indeed God can tell the future. And not only does God claim to know the future, In the book of Isaiah, he claims to cause the future to happen as it will. God is sovereign, and in spite of how crazy life is, God is sovereign, and he makes no apologies or excuses for the events that will occur. Some people trying to explain God to a world that that feels pain intensely and says, how can a loving God allow these horrible things to happen? Some will try to explain God and say, (coughs) well, you have to understand, God doesn't know the future. He's responding and reacting to the future. Really? Is that the kind of God you want to serve? 
Is that the kind of God you want to? Well, it doesn't matter what kind of God we want, but that's not the God who has revealed himself to us in his word. He makes no excuses. He makes no apologies for being sovereign over all human activity. At the same time, he holds all humans, humans that he created, responsible for their actions and their worship or lack thereof. So today's text is Isaiah 42. It is the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the Lord's servant or the servant of the Lord is referenced a lot of times uh, in Isaiah. And often you can tell that he's talking about his people, his covenant people, Israel and or Judah as the, as the servant of the Lord. He's talking about the people as a whole. Uh, but then... There are times when he's talking specifically about an individual. Now, it's not surprising that he calls Israel his servant because even when Abraham was called out of pagan worship to a covenant relationship with Yahweh, he said, I am going to bless the entire world through you and your descendants. <clears throat> became obvious, though, that no one human being, not any human being, is able to obey the whole law, much less an entire nation. Therefore, God would send another servant, the Messiah, who would get the job done. You will see in these four servant songs, if you've written down or taken a picture of the, of the slide, you'll see increasingly the servant is going to pay for the sins of the people. He's going to be the one to take God's punishment for their sins, his righteous wrath. There's not a whole lot of, <clears throat> of bad stuff going on with the servant in this one, but it will be increasingly so as we go. Uh, the title of today's message is Multifaceted <clears throat> Redemption. As we live in this already not yet state of relationship with the Lord and in his kingdom, we can feel as Confused at times as those who don't know the Lord. I'm going to read the first nine verses and then draw application from the entire chapter. And out of respect for God's word, I'll ask you if you would please stand as we read Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Behold my servant <clears throat> whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Let me just stop and say right here on, on verse 1. <clears throat> he says, I, I delight in my servant. I have put my spirit on him. Does that remind you anything with Jesus? As in the baptism, the spirit of God came to rest. The father said, this is my beloved son in whom, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 2, this is, this is Jesus he's talking about. Though, of course, the people of Isaiah's time did not know Jesus, but they were understanding that he was talking about somebody special, a Messiah they came to call this one who would come. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He's not like the warriors of old that would come in and destroy people and their lives and their cities. He will faithfully bring forth justice or truth. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, those lands far away, wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. And who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and, the, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes, and our hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and be seated. Well, I'm so grateful for the men who preached during my absence, which was in most of June and July. And as I, I listened to the sermons, I often heard the same refrain. You know, there's just so much more here that I'm going to be able to talk about. And it's the truth. Isaiah is just packed and loaded. There's no way to get through it all. I'm going to share this morning seven truths, lessons from Isaiah 42. And it won't come close to all that is here. Hopefully, though, it will, it, it will be a bit of a help in trying to make sense of life when it makes absolutely no sense from a human standpoint. You should know, however, that the best way to handle the abrupt changes that life presents you is to trust the one who is sovereign over all nature and all the movements of our lives and of the lives of, of everyone who is alive. So this truth undergirds all seven points, the first of which is if God does not save us through his servant Jesus, we will not be saved. But you know this, this is, this is gospel 101, right? If, if Jesus does not save us, we will not be saved. You'll, you'll find references to the servant of the Lord throughout Isaiah 40 to 55. Isaiah 42 builds on Isaiah 41, which Scott Colbert did an excellent job of explaining a, a few weeks ago. We were first exposed to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, where God specifically referred to the nation of Israel and not to an individual. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, follows directly on the heels at the end of chapter 41, where <coughs> God mocks the idols and the people who made the idols and worshiped them. The servant of the Lord stands in direct contrast to lifeless idols who are nothing more than metal images or wooden images with empty wind. But now the Lord holds these idols in contempt, but he delights in his servant upon whom the Spirit of God rests. Once again, 
the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, along with the Father's expression of his pleasure in the Son, points back to Isaiah 42. So why was Isaiah writing to people that would live 100 years in the future? I mean, the whole, whole first part of the book, he's saying, look, there's judgment coming. Now he's saying, absolutely, there is judgment. It's from Babylon, but guess what? God still loves you, and he, and he writes to comfort the people, uh, even though they were being disciplined because of their unbelief and their unfaithfulness. Second, second, he writes to encourage God's people by assuring them that God would punish those who had mistreated them. In Isaiah 42, 1-4, God promises to bless his people through a servant who will be able to do what only God can do. In other words, the servant will be divine. But then he begins to say, and this servant will judge the nations. He'll speak gently to some and judge others. So what does all this talk of idols being incapable of saving us have to do with us? I mean, is anybody here bowing down on a regular basis to... To, to wooden or metal images? I, I don't think so. I, I'm sure that's not the case, but do you look to people or status or material possessions or political systems to save you? Of course not. Are you sure? It, in the same way the nation of Israel was incapable of keeping God's law, so we are incapable of making ourselves righteous enough to stand before him, worthy to inherit eternal life. You cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. Second, the way of salvation, which comes through the servant's meekness and humility, is counterintuitive to human patterns of salvation. So in Matthew 12, verses 18 to 21, Matthew takes the time to quote all four of these verses, verses 1 through 4 in Isaiah 42. And he talks about the servant who is meek and humble. And he quoted Isaiah at that particular point because Jesus, having had an argument with the Pharisees who were really upset with him, I believe, for healing on the Sabbath, then Jesus goes away from them People come to Jesus. He heals them all, but Jesus says, don't tell anybody. So what's that about? Well, he's just essentially saying, look, the time is not right for me to have the ultimate showdown with the Pharisees, which will lead to my crucifixion. <clears throat> so in the meantime, keep it to yourself that I am the Messiah, because even you don't understand the kind of Messiah that I am. Isaiah had already... Look, the... The Pharisees were not looking for Jesus to come as a meek and humble. They weren't looking for somebody born in a stable, for goodness sake, and who is a carpenter by trade. They, they were looking for a powerful political military ruler who would come in and throw off Roman oppression. But Isaiah had already said that the servant would be a different kind of deliverer. Verses 2 and 3 again. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Follow me! No lay mis kind of revolution that Jesus was going to be leading. A bruised reed he will not break 
What happened when, when, when nations came in and conquered other nations? They just destroyed, they obliterated people. They would run, rip open pregnant women. They would, it was awful. It was just awful in that day. And there's so much more of it going on in our world than you have any idea. We have been free for a long time. We have had no threat of war for a long time. I'm telling you, human nature is all. Last century was the worst in all of history. More deaths in all of history combined. Possibly because there were more people. But it was horrible last century. It still goes on. But Jesus is not like that. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, Isaiah is going to talk a lot about how Cyrus is going to come and defeat the Babylonians who had been so cruel to the Israelites. But the Lord's true servant would not come into the land with shouting and destruction, but with a gentleness that would touch and heal lepers and treat tax collectors and prostitutes with compassion. Even though believers have such a savior, Many of God's covenant people seek redemption in some other place. Redemption of their broken lives they seek from within. We are a self-reliant people. It's part of our muscle memory, part of our DNA. Ever since the Enlightenment, the scientific age, we just, look, if you got a problem, what do you do? Do you pray about it? Not unless it's one that you can't handle on your own. So it's no surprise, is it? That people came up with these goofy statements years ago. Lord, I don't mean, mean to bother you much. I know you're busy. But I need your help on this one. We need his help on everything. We need his help to get out of bed. We need, if he didn't allow us, we wouldn't breathe another breath. There would be no more oxygen. Sorry to you OCD people. You'll be <gasps> thinking that the whole way, rest of the way. Look, we're self-reliant, so are our efforts at self-help help and personal redemption meaningful and ultimately successful? John Oswald describes the futility of such efforts. Think about this, quote, Insisting of making reality a mirror of ourselves, we have plunged ourselves into darkness, not being self-originating, we nevertheless try to explain the origins of things in terms of ourselves. Not being self-existent, we try to explain the end of all things in terms of ourselves. The result is predictable. Existence is an in endless cycle that comes from nowhere and goes nowhere. God's plan for salvation. His way, his means of salvation is counterintuitive. And even though we are saved by grace through faith, it is easy for us to soon forget that salvation is of the Lord. It is not of the world, nor is it from within. The world, the world is not interested in part of you. It wants all of you. And if you seek to find meaning and purpose, and redemption in the world, you're going to get sucked. Oh, well, I agree with these things. I'm not saying hide your head 
in the sand. 1 Corinthians 5 makes it really clear. Look, we're called to, to be in this world with people who don't believe like we believe and certainly don't behave like we behave. But if you link arms like you're supposed to do with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to find that the world's not satisfied with a little bit of you. It wants all of you. That's why you must preach the gospel to yourself every day, which puts you in a position to understand and apply the third point. As followers of the servant, of the servant, we have the privilege of serving others, but only when we serve in the power of the Spirit is it meaningful. God's design for his people was clear all the way back to the calling of Abraham. Once again, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your descendants. When Abraham is referenced in the New Testament, he is described as a man of faith and the model for all who would believe in Jesus. His belief in the promises of God was the basis for the Lord declaring him righteous. How can we be righteous enough to enter heaven? Only when Jesus says righteous, righteous. Or when, the, or when the Father, because of Jesus, says righteous and the Spirit gives us new life. Many believers think that they're saved by faith, but after, the Christian, after that, the Christian life is up to them. Okay, the Lord saved me, now it's up to me, I'm on my own. That's not how the New Testament describes a Christian life, though. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 tells us that we live this life the same way it began, by faith. Faith in Christ. And the New Testament makes abundantly clear that if the Holy Spirit is not leading us, our efforts are not pleasing to the Lord. I told the Grace Connection class this morning, I've been in, in John chapter 15, those first 10 or 11 verses, and I'm going to be there probably all week long because I just need to be reminded and absorb the truth that apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And every branch that doesn't bear fruit Hauled away. And every branch that does abide in me and bears fruit, he's going to prune, cut back. And that's part of that multifaceted redemption that sometimes doesn't feel a lot like redemption. God's ways in working with us and making us usable to bring his message to the world are not always pleasant. The good news, if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. That is our privilege, and we will do so alongside unexpected family members, as our fourth point declares. The choir that sings the new song to the Lord will be made up of unlikely characters. Verse 10 commands God's people to sing a new song to the Lord, His praise from the ends of the earth. Some people think this is when the Lord does a work in your life, you may have sung these songs all along, but now you sing them with different meaning. Or there are new songs being written to the Lord. And a lot of people think this is talking about the songs that were singing around the throne when people from every tribe and every nation are giving praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a picture of that right now. After God commands his people to sing a new song to the Lord, his praise from the end of the earth, he then encourages Gentiles to sing his praises, which would have been entirely unexpected from the covenant people of God in Isaiah's day. They thought that God 
pretty much related to the nation of Israel. And, and this is one of the problems for the legalizers in the New Testament. What was going on in the New Testament, a lot of time, times Paul was, was um, speaking against those who would call people first to come into the nation of Israel, then you could be saved through Jesus. It's kind of like you can be saved as long as you take the mark of the Jew upon yourself. If you will be circumcised, then you can believe in Jesus. And Paul was saying, no, no, it's not about the law at all. It never was about the law. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. Those who believe the Lord, those who believe are the sons of Abraham, Galatians 3 says. So all along, it was God's plan that through the nation of Israel, he would bring others into the family and would bless them. Although it would have surprised the Israelites to think that many Gentiles would be included in the family of God. We've gotten pretty used to it. In fact, I wonder how many of you even have a, 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 an acquaintance who is a Jewish believer. We think of the church as pretty much Gentiles. And it is mostly Gentiles. I do believe the Jewish nation as a whole is coming back to the Lord one day. But right now, it's mostly Gentiles. But we have our standards, just like the Israelites did. Right? And there are some people we think, ain't no way God's saving them. It's just not happening. We have our strong doubts about certain people. And there are some, we think, who are unlikely to be saved. Who is it that you think is not a good candidate for salvation? God's ways are counterintuitive. It may be that he is working in their hearts. The very people you think are so far from him. So as the Lord brings you into contact with different family members, different neighbors, co-workers, whoever. And you think, ah, no way, that person's getting saved. Pray for them. God may be calling him to him. He will surprise the world maybe, and especially you, but he may be drawing them to himself. Fifth, though it may seem that God is not working, he will do so at the exact right time and with perfect power. And he uses really interesting language to say what he's going to do. The language in Isaiah 42, verses 13 to 17 describes God, God's ways in defeating the enemies of his people. He will come in like a strong warrior with, and with all the emotion and energy of a woman in labor, knowing exactly when to, uh, to push and accomplish his will. He knows exactly, and there's this intensity with which he comes to defeat the enemies of God's people. So does this contradict the earlier uh, description of the gentle Savior? Who's not bruising reeds and, and, and snuffing out wicks. No, it just, it's just one of the multifaceted features of God's redemption. A few weeks ago, Scott talked about three classes of people referred to in Isaiah 41. The elect who believe, the elect who will believe, and the enemies of God. We don't like to think about the enemies of God. It's difficult for many believers to think that God will defeat their enemies. But it's a blessing that will only be realized fully 
in eternity. We're not supposed to think, yeah, get them, God, right now. We're supposed to pray like Paul did. My heart's desire for Israel is that they would be saved. I would count myself accursed. I would spend eternity in hell if God would allow it so that my brothers and sisters would be saved. But there is coming a day when we will recognize the beauty of God's plan. If your brothers and sisters in Christ were systematically being put to death by the government and you were in fear for your life, you would likely find more value in this aspect of your redemption. But the pattern of God waiting to move and then moving quickly is familiar to most of us who believe, not just in this realm, but in all realms. When you read the promises of God's answers to prayer in the New Testament and you pray for a long time for a good time and the heavens are silent, it may feel like, what's going on? Is something wrong with me? Is, is something wrong with God? The promise of Isaiah is that even though your life may seem disastrous, God is working and at just the right time, he will move. And he will act decisively. That's why we should praise him in the darkest of times, knowing the truth of our next point. God's glory is not up for debate. Man, I just, I loved the song that the band did that, that Michael and Kinsey led us in. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. All of those times where he said, I am the Lord in Isaiah 42, 1 to 9 should have been capitalized. It should have been in all caps. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Look, even though we're drawing a great deal of application from this chapter for our lives, the primary focus is on God's glory. Let me ask you, when you give attention to the idols of your own life, and you know what they are, I don't know. I know what my idols are. When you give attention to those idols, is that good for you or not? Nope. <laughs> when you give glory to the Lord, even if you suffer on account of your commitment to glorify God. When you say, I'm going to glorify God and people are mean to you, they persecute you, in other lands they would even kill you, is that good for you or not? It is. Why? Because God will not share his glory with anyone else. I was talking with a pastor friend this week and he and another friend of his <clears throat> uh, were going to be speaking at a conference, and his friend said to him, oh boy, this is going to be good. Uh, I'm, I know a lot about you, and this time other people knew about you too. And my friend said, I just told him one thing, remember, I get up last. <laughs> and God has the last say. God gets up last. Always. His glory will be revealed to be all that matters in the world. As God mocks the idols and judges those who make and worship them in Isaiah 41, so he warns us against the idols in our own lives, knowing 
that they will lead us away from him. So, should you seek to glorify God or exalt yourself? That's a silly question, isn't it? It's not up for debate. It's not even a question. So, the next time you want people to say good things about you, next time you're looking for a little applause, next time you're wanting just the world to know, oh, I hope he'll say this about me or she'll tell others about this because I, I, I can't do it myself. Think about God's glory is not up for debate. You don't have a choice in that issue. Whether you seek your own glory or you give glory to God. As Chuck Swindoll says, never expect or accept glory that belongs to God. And by the way, can I just say this? I say it every so often because it helped me so much. And several of you have said, that really helps me. So I heard someone say years ago, <clears throat> if you're a pastor and you're wanting to give the glory to God and people say, oh, I just love what you did. I just love what you did. You struggle with that. And most often you say, or I love what you said. You struggle and you say, oh, well, it's, I'm nothing. It's just the Lord and thank the Lord. All glory to God. He said, just say thank you. Just say thank you. You don't have to make a big deal, but just... Say thank you, because it is kind of a struggle, but in your heart, give glory to God. So never expect or accept glory that belongs to God. And then last of all, in love, God disciplines his children for their good. We have often acknowledged that one benefit God's children receive when they glorify the Lord is that whatever brings God glory is also for the good of his children. We also acknowledge theoretically that all discipline from the hand of a perfect and loving father is good for his children. When you think of discipline, do you think only in terms of punishment? When your child uh, tells a lie and you apply consequences for his decision, are you being unjust and unkind? Of course not. You're trying to deliver your child from much greater consequences later on. It would be a good time to plug the parenting class that's coming up this fall, right? And it's going to be going all a year between now and next April, just one time a month on a Wednesday night. I, I saw Kevin DeYoung said something the other day. I'm going to write a book on uh, parenting called Gospel-Centered Yelling. And I, so I thought that's, that's pretty, I think there would be a lot of interest in that book. <clears throat> so you discipline your child when he or she does wrong. But when you... When you tell your child you cannot play until you first clean your room, is that discipline as well? It is discipline. And it's a very good discipline. All, some of the things that happen in your life when, when the Lord is disciplining you, and Hebrews 12 says that if you do are not disciplined and you're not a child of God, when difficult things happen in your life, it could be that he is preparing you for something uh, that will be to his glory and Consequently, for your good down the line. So what is it that's occurring in your life right now that causes you discomfort or keeps you from being 
as happy as you would like to be. I don't know what that is. I know it's probably, in, in terms of the world, some of those things are unfair or just unexplainable. But I do know this. If you were a child of the king, if you have trusted the servant of the Lord with all your heart and you've given him your life, he is lovingly guiding your life, molding you into the image of Christ. At the end of Isaiah, uh, in verses 18 to 25, God rebukes his servant for being deaf and blind to the ways of God. Now, clearly, it's, he's not talking about Jesus any longer. He's talking about his servant Israel. In fact, one of the marks of the servant is that he opens the eyes of the blind and causes the deaf to hear. Because of their sin, the Lord judged the people of Judah and sent them into captivity. God will discipline us as well when we go astray, but, but not all of the Lord's discipline in our lives is the result of sin. Again, sometimes he's just making us more like Jesus through suffering. You ever get to that place? Don't you find it interesting when life starts to go very badly for you and you start praying, oh, Lord, please, please, but you're doing everything you can to manage it. You're pulling, you're making every call, you're pulling every string, you're, 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 you're calling in every chip, whatever the metaphor you want to use. You're doing everything you can to rectify the situation. But then when it gets totally beyond anything that you can do, you just put your life in the hands of the Lord. There's something beautiful about that place. There's something freeing, something releasing. And we could get there a lot sooner if we would just trust the Lord. It's not that we're not supposed to make things better if we can. It's all part of the process that God put in place in the week of creation when he said, let the earth sprout. But there are some things that we just can't fix. And sometimes that's a good thing when it drives us to the Lord at that level. Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah who called out Judah and Israel for their sins. The book of Hosea is, is it's a beautiful picture of a God who pursues his faithless people. The Lord said of Israel in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What do you think of in scripture when you read the wilderness? Uh, it often represented a place of discipline, but it was also a place where people encountered the Lord and found protection from those who were intent on harming them. It can be a place of temptation like Jesus went into the wilderness. Certainly a place of, place of judgment, but it's a place where God protects his people and speaks tenderly to them. Maybe your wilderness feels overwhelming and devoid of God's presence, but your trial could be the very place the Lord is wooing you so that he will speak tenderly to you and shower you 
with his love. And how will you know that he has put you in that place? Well, you won't know until you trust him. When you trust the servant of the Lord who came to live and die for you so that you might be the recipient of his multifaceted redemption. Don't say redemption looks just one way. It's multifaceted. No matter how confusing your life may seem from your place on the ground, that's the point where you will see him in all his beauty. Trust him. You can always Trust God. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, no, no matter how many times um, we come to your word, we just come to learn or we come driven to your word because of the circumstances of life. We are told over and over, glorify me, trust me. Lord, um, we live in an age where we can take care of a whole lot of things ourselves. And why trust you if we can handle it ourselves? Lord, thank you for being faithful to remind us that there are a lot of things that we cannot handle. We, redemption doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from your hand. And so thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for being who you are and calling us into your covenant family. And may our hearts Rise together as we worship you and glorify you and put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, Go to graceccnc.org.